You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Mossy Oak has partnered with Ducks Unlimited to bring you Shadowgrass Habitat, the official camo of Ducks Unlimited. Shadowgrass Habitat pays homage to the first waterfowl-specific camo pattern ever made, Mossy Oak Shadowgrass, while incorporating the most realistic, digitally accurate images of the natural habitats that make up true waterfowl habitat. Mossy Oak is committed to conservation as its highest priority. With the launch of Mossy Oak Shadowgrass Habitat, Mossy Oak will continue funding habitat protection projects through our longtime partnership with Ducks Unlimited. Check out the new Shadowgrass Habitat pattern at mossyoak.com. Step into the world of Campus Waterfowl, a community that's shaping the future of the hunting industry. At Campus Waterfowl, we're more than just hunters. We're students. We're We're conservationists. We're conservationists. With the next generation. generation. Join us as we highlight the dedication and commitment of young hunters nationwide. Visit CampusWaterfowl.com to become part of our story. Campus Waterfowl, the future of hunting starts here. We are the Ducks Unlimited Nation. United by our passion for hunting, the outdoors, and conservation. The habitats that Ducks Unlimited have been maintaining and building since 1937 have effects far beyond the duck hunting community. Follow along with our YouTube series as we tell your stories and become part of the Ducks Unlimited Nation. DU Nation. Take it outside. Mic check, please. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Ducks on the Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Jennings. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Brazier. My name is John Gordon. I'll be your host. And I'm your host, Katie Burke. Welcome to the Ducks Unlimited Podcast, the only podcast about all things waterfowl. From hunting insights to science-based discussions about ducks, geese, and issues affecting waterfowl and wetlands conservation in North America, we bring the resource to you, the DU Podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. We have another one of our Species Profile episodes today, and this one is pretty special from a personal standpoint because of a recent trip that I went on. Uh, We're recording this on October 27th, and just last week, just about five days ago, I returned from a week-long annual leave, vacation trip with some friends and colleagues to Cold Bay, Alaska. And anybody in this in the waterfowl world, when we mention Cold Bay, Alaska, one of the first things that will probably come to mind is Eisenbeck Lagoon, and then comes to mind Brant. And so that's going to be the topic of our discussion today. And we have joining us remotely, Dr. Mark Lindbergh has done a lot of research on this species over the years, much of his career. And uh, Mark, great to have you here. I was with you just last week, but it's good to see you again. Yeah, nice to see you, Mike. That was a blast last week. It was a it was a great trip, even for those of us that live in Alaska. That's a very special place to visit. Yeah, it really is. That was my first time ever to Cold Bay. I'd been to Alaska once before. I think it was Anchorage. I was there at a conference and did get out for a couple of days around the conference. But 
being free from work and just being able to immerse yourself in one of those iconic waterfowl landscapes and and migratory bird landscapes for that matter uh, was really refreshing and it was a going into it i said you know that's probably a once in a lifetime experience or bucket list trip I left that trip, however, thinking, you know, I could do this. I could do this well more than just one time, and I'm certainly going to try to do that. It was it was great, and it was also great to be there with people like you, uh, who have studied the birds that are that that are so abundant in that landscape and know the importance of it to this particular species that we'll talk about. We also had our our chief scientist, Dr. Steve Adair, former chief scientist, Dr. Tom Mormon, Jerry Holden, Fred Rutger, retired U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service pilot biologist, and it it was a great group with all bringing sort of our own set of knowledge and experience with some of those areas. And man, I, I wouldn't trade that for anything. It was pretty cool. Glad to have you. And all the photos that you were able to take with that uh, during that trip as well. Yeah. Hard to put that into words. Memories for a lifetime. Yeah. I'm glad you enjoyed the photos. Yeah. You know what they say about Anchorage in Alaska? You could almost see Alaska from Anchorage. But, uh, <laughs> but I believe it. Cold Bay, is that's only the third time I've been there after living in the state for 27 years. So it's, as you know, it's not an easy place to get to. And it's um, really quite unique in the state in terms of the diversity of habitats and species and experience. And the other person I'd add that was enhanced that so much was Jeff Wasley, the the uh, owner of Four Fiveways Outfitters, who, of course, we were working with because Jeff has 20 plus years uh, of time out there. And uh, his knowledge is just amazing and his, his abilities. So it was that for me, really enhance things. I really value people that are out there almost on a daily basis and what they're seeing and um, what what they could offer. Yeah, thank you for adding that. It was my first time to meet Jeff. I'd heard a lot about him, and he has such a respected reputation in in our waterfowling community, and, and so it was great to spend some time with him and look forward to doing that again someday. Mark, we'll, we'll move on into the discussion here, and you've been on at least one episode before. We might have broken that into two episodes. I can't remember, but early on when we were doing the DU podcast, we had you to come on to talk about band targeting and what are the some of the consequences of that type of behavior and why we don't want hunters to do that. Uh, and so you brought a lot of great knowledge and, and experience to that particular discussion. So some of the longtime listeners of the podcast might recognize your name, might remember who you are. But for our new listeners, introduce yourself to our audience, your career, where you used to work and what you're doing now. Yeah, sure. And thanks for bringing me on for a more popular podcast. I could see why you didn't have me on after band targeting. <laughs> no, probably, not at all. <laughs> the listeners probably wrote, don't ever have that guy on again. He's yeah. uh, Anyways, I grew up in Pennsylvania, like many in our profession, grew up hunting and fishing, and that led to interest in the outdoors that... Um, grew um, through time. And I, I, uh, after my undergraduate, I did a master's degree at Cornell University on Canada geese. I was uh, influenced early in my interest in waterfowl by my first job with the Pennsylvania Game Commission and the waterfowl biologist for that state. And like I said, went on to Cornell, worked on um, hunting vulnerability of resident and migrant Canada geese. There was a time when resident populations of geese were really growing. I completed that in, well, I completed it in 1991, but while I was completing it, 
an opportunity came open in, in Alaska to work with Jim Sedinger on on Black Brant, which we'll be discussing a bunch today. And and uh, I didn't think I could ever do it because I was in the middle of my master's degree. But um, my advisor at the time, Rich Malecki, was really open, and uh, we worked something out. And I left my master's degree for uh, a little while, went to Alaska in 1990. Completed my first field season for my PhD on Black Brant on the Yukon Delta of Alaska, specifically at uh, Tatakoke River Camp. Came back to Cornell, uh, finished my master's, and then moved with my now wife in uh, spring of 1991 to Alaska. And um, finished my PhD there in 1996 on Black Brant and site fidelity, which I hope we have time to talk about today. And then um, I actually came and worked for you guys for a while. In Memphis as a research scientist. Um, great organization, enjoyed my time, but uh, uh, the North called and uh, I left. You guys went to Montana, spent three years as a faculty member there, and that wasn't quite far enough north for me. So uh, <laughs> I, there's a quote about Montana. What is it? It's the last best place, and Alaska is the last great place. And uh, at least for me, that um, that seemed to be the case. So oh, in 2001, uh, we again moved back to Alaska and we've been here ever since. Uh, started our family and I've been employed by the University of Alaska Fairbanks as a wildlife biologist since um, 2001. And I recently retired um, from that organization, from that university. <clears throat> Worked all around the state during my career, um, uh, largely on waterfowl, but uh, I expanded out and did some work on moose, and I really enjoyed working on ptarmigan, which was a fascinating species that we ran into in Cold Bay, and I think you guys are, would agree was a really interesting species to to work with. And um, now I'm just trying to um, continue to have a, I don't know, presence in the profession and contribute in different ways. And uh, I think there's a lot of potential for photography and and contributing to conservation and, and science in general. So um, I'm trying to explore that. And that's been a, a fun new thing to, to try out. Yeah. And, and you have incredible skill in that in that area of photography as well. So I certainly encourage you to continue pursuing it. And we were talking last week in Cole Bay about how Alaska is one of those places where people, some people visit there or go work there and they never leave. You actually left after your first visit to Alaska, but then you eventually made your way back. So you kind of fall into that category also as someone who fell in love with Alaska and, and had to find a way uh, to get back there. And so, I, but I'm still wrestling in my mind of how you chose Montana and Alaska over over you know Western Tennessee and the <laughs> humid summers, hot humid summers that we have down here. Now, I say that jokingly. It is it's not a place that that everyone can tolerate. You know, I grew up in North Mississippi, and so it's it's much closer to home. But but my goodness, if I had a second home, Alaska would be a good choice. Yeah. And it, it's it's a place that I hope to get back to again. Now we've had several opportunities to leave Alaska since we moved back in '01, and and I think my wife said it well. Um, we're just not done with this place yet, or maybe yeah. it's not done with us. Um, yeah. The winters are getting a little longer than they used to be, but um, we're finding ways to travel. And yeah, it's 27 years, and I don't regret a one of those years. So it's been fun. Well, good for you. I, I wanted you to talk a little bit about your research on Brant, and, and we can just kind of keep this brie- brief. Talk about uh, some of the topics that you covered, and and how I guess. 
how much of your time in Alaska intersected with Brandt. Yeah, so like I said, I, I first went to Alaska in 1990, the spring of 1990, and I don't know, a week after arriving, I was shipped out to the field site on the Yukon Delta of Alaska to, to learn the ropes from then a very experienced technician who had been running the Tatakoak River field camp. And, uh, you know, quite a shock, right? Left New York, Pennsylvania, showed up on the Yukon Delta, which is an expansive, flat coastal plain. And when we showed up in early May, it was, uh, was white. It was a white golf course that extended forever. Anyways, um, got in, uh, in the camp. And um, my research was focused on site fidelity in general of brand, a behavior of them returning to the same place year after year. And I looked at that at multiple scales. I looked at it at the colony st- scale, uh, black brand, brand in general, nesting colonies. And I was asking, do they return to those colonies year after year? I looked at whether once they returned, did they return to the same nest site? And did they use the same area to raise their broods? The, the fun part of that for me, well, it was a very interesting question in general, but it allowed me to travel around and visit other colonies to see if birds were moving. We have them marked with uh, uh, tarsal tags that are individually coded, and I traveled around to the western Arctic of Canada, Anderson River Delta specifically, several colonies on the Yukon Delta, to the north slope of Alaska, Colville River Delta, and I looked for Brant over the next four years that it had dispersed and asked the question, how much do they move? And so, what a great way to get get a taste of Alaska. And um, yeah, that, that was an excellent project for me. It worked out really well and worked really well with Jim Sedinger, my advisor at the time, and he continues to be very actively involved in Black Brant management, conservation, even in retirement. Mark, did you have uh, graduate students that, that did work on, on Brant over the years? No. So when I finished my work on Brant, I had um, uh, Jim continued to supervise the project. He's, I believe he's been supervising that. He supervised that project from 1984 to 2017. Um, I had students work on emperor geese, a student work on emperor geese on the Yukon Delta, but it was only in like 2016 that I started to talk to Jim about his retirement and who was going to take over. And I started going out back out to the Delta then. And then in 2018, I took over leadership of the field site at Tatakoak River. And I supervised uh, students there and still do. Um, but I was in charge of the camp through 2021, and now David Coons is taking over leadership of that project. We'll hop right into this one, and I'll get you to talk about, well, the first question I guess I have for you from a personal perspective, and I think it's also a great place to start for this episode, is the common name for this species. You can talk. You can start out with the, the scientific name, but I want you to talk about the common names that we often hear for this species. You'll hear it referred to as Brant, Black Brant, Pacific Brant, Pacific Black Brant. I've heard some people use that. Atlantic Brant, there's Brent geese. So kind of unpack, unravel all of that that nomenclature around this species, if you could. Thanks, Mike. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no. So as I already mentioned, my work has been almost on Brant has been almost exclusively in the West. And that subspecies that exists in that uh, flyway um, is black brand, Pacific black brand, 
Sea Goose of the North, I've heard it called, because <laughs> um, they have almost an exclusive marine um, habit. And um, they're one of three species worldwide. Um, they nest in the Yukon Delta and then the uh, Alaska and Western Arctic of Canada, as well as the Arctic of Russia, the black brant does. And that's Branta bernicla nigricans, that subspecies. The other North American subspecies that's recognized are Atlantic brant, which nests in eastern Arctic Canada and winter on the East Coast, notably New Jersey and New York shores um, and um, coast. And um, they're known as Branta bernicla rota. And they're distinguished from the black brant by their belly color. So Atlantic brant have almost a white belly. Uh, black brant, as the name implies, have nearly a black belly. Uh, there's a hybrid. It's not officially recognized as a subspecies in the central Canadian Arctic, more to the west, in the Perry Island region is, is the gray belly brant, they're called. They don't have a specific subspecies designation. They're... Um, they breed in that region. They, they look like they're hybrids between Atlantics and Blacks, as as uh, the genetics shows. And they tend to uh, winter in the Padilla Bay region of Washington. Um, they do pass through uh, Eisenbeck, Cold Bay area, as we'll talk about here in a little bit as well. Um, but they tend to uh, winter further north than do the Black brand, which I forgot to mention, uh, used to predominantly uh, winter in, in Baja, California, Mexico, but as I'm sure we'll talk about over the last two decades, have really started to change that distribution. And then just to finish the the, the world population of Brant, the European um, subspecies Branta bernicla bernicla is often called the Brent goose. And um, I hope you don't ask me much about them because <laughs> I don't I don't know much about them, but. Um, <laughs> That's the three subspecies, Branta bernicla is the species. So when we talk about any type of brant or brent geese, it's it's that it's one, it's the same species, but there are different subspecies and maybe even some subpopulations within those subspecies out there. Is that also kind of a the thing that I've read? Like maybe the Western High Arctic, Eastern High Arctic, that may just be more related to some of the breeding populations. Is that right? Yeah, that's the breeding populations. And, you know, from a management standpoint, they're not managed differently. So, uh, conservation standpoint, I don't think for this podcast, those designations are as important, but they're certainly um, in the sciences, we talk about those population down to the population level, because we're interested in, in how they are changing or specific challenges they might face on the Yukon Delta versus the Arctic Coastal Plain of Alaska, for example. So that population designation, I think, is less important probably to the end user if you could, or the hunter, if you could think of it that way. You and I were talking before we started recording, and I was asking about, about, about how much work you had done on Atlantic Brant uh, versus Pacific Brant. And you, you made the point that, you know, most, not just your research, but most of the research in general for Brant in North America has been conducted on 
the Pacific subspecies, Pacific brant, black brant. And that's not to say we don't know a few things about the Atlantic brant, but for the for this podcast, most of what we'll talk about will relate to the Pacific brant. Uh, so just want to kind of give people a, a heads up on what to expect there. You did note that there are some, some key developments through the years for Atlantic brant that will be important and some differences, some major differences in the ecology of those subspecies that we'll touch on. But for the most part, and largely because a significant volume, significantly more from a volume standpoint of research has been done on the Pacific brand. That'll be our focus. So I guess, Mark, let's move on here for those that may not be familiar uh, taxonomically and appearance-wise for this this bird. What are the What's the brant's appearance and who are its closest relatives within the waterfowl world? Yeah, good question. So there's second smallest goose in North America. The Ross's goose is the only one that's smaller. They're two and a half to about four pounds, depending on the gender and the time of year. <clears throat> Late summer, they're at their lowest weight after breeding. And then um, when they stage for the black brant, when they stage for migration, they, they put on almost half again their weight and get up close to four pounds. They're not much bigger than a mallard, um, but their appearance is very unique. Um, black brant, like I said, and Atlantic for the top part are mostly black. They have a very distinct neck ring, um, white neck ring that is quite uh, subtle, but uh, I think you would agree is pretty beautiful. And then, like I said, the black brant has mostly well, they have some uh, grayish barring on their side, and then the belly on the black brand is black, and that on the Atlantic brand is mostly white. Taxonomically, that's a good question about the closest relatives. <laughs> I, 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 well, they're in Branta, so they're related to other geese. Um, I actually don't know off the top of my head the most closely related goose so I was doing some additional reading on this species earlier today and, and last night because I was kind of curious about some of these things. I try to come into these conversations with some understanding of, of, uh, of background material. Barnacle geese and Canada geese and, and Brant are all kind of in that same, I don't know, clade or whatever would be the proper term. Does that make that sound about right? That sounds about right. Yeah, that's what I would have guessed, but uh, I must admit I didn't review that in the, off the top of my head. I wasn't sure. So I'm glad you you did your homework yeah. more than me. Yeah, and that's good. I kind of like the fact that I can ask you a question and, and you're willing to say, you know, I, I really, I'm really not sure because I know you and I both, there is this there seems to be this expectation if you tell someone that, yeah, I study waterfowl, I'm a waterfowl professor or waterfowl scientist, folks expect you to know everything about every species of waterfowl out there. At least that's kind of the, the maybe the way I think about it, and that's far from the truth. And so sometimes we just have to say, yeah, I don't know. I, maybe I knew at one time, but it's been a while since I reviewed it. So I, I can appreciate that. Good. Yeah. Well, uh, hopefully that's the only question you stumped me on, but I doubt <laughs> it. So, no, it's, uh, I actually did some genetic work on Brant for my PhD, but I, I had forgotten about that. And, and I think you recognize this profession has gotten so specialized. I mean, the genetic techniques are so advanced over what I was using um, back in the day. And, um, you know, I just haven't kept up with some of that. There's, there's some people around the country that are obviously the experts, but um, yeah, that's, that's, Worth pointing out, and Barney's barnacle geese don't surprise me at all that they're related. What about like appearance differences between adults and 
and juveniles or first-year birds. Uh, pe- most, a lot of people are going to be familiar with uh, the, the difference in appearance between first-year white fronts, first-year snow geese, and their respective adults. How does that, that pattern play out for Brant? Yeah, the most distinguishing feature between the um, the juveniles of the year and the adults is the the coverts, the feathers on the wing that cover the uh, trailing feathers. The primaries and the secondaries are white edged in the juveniles and all black in the adults, and that's visible in flight and certainly in hand. And that stays with the bird through its first year of life before it molts that and replaces it thereafter. The juveniles tend not to have quite as much of a white neck ring either, but um, that's not always the case, and the white coverts are a guaranteed that that's going to be visible and, and useful for aging birds. Yeah, and highly visible when the birds are in flight. That's one of the things that I found myself noticing as we were out hunting the birds. And you can see them if they bank with the, and if you got this, the sun, if they're close enough, uh, then it's very, very easy, like it is with, with other goose species, to identify the, the young from the adults. And so, just wanted to point that out. You know, this, this is a species of goose that, that is going it is definitely more restricted in its distribution across North America. It's more of an estuarine, a coastal bird. And so as a result of that, there's gonna be a larger percentage of our listener base and of the people that are interested in in this podcast that will not have interacted much or kind of seen Brant compared to let's say white fronts or Canada geese or snow geese. And so uh, I think it's pretty cool in that regard. It's another one of those species that we can introduce people to that they may not have encountered to this point. So, in in that regard, one of the things that I want to do is play the call of of the brant. This is a single bird. Mark, I don't really remember this being a prominent call that we heard there at Cold Bay, but I don't know how many instances we would have had a single bird, more like flocks of thousands that we had. And so here's a, I think this is a, a call from a flock of brant. A pretty interesting call I found it to be. And then here's another. So a grunty, growly kind of call, and they also do a little bit of a of a rolling of their of their call in some respects. And so anyway, that's that's what they sound like. And we were out there on Eisenbeck Lagoon and we had tens of thousands that were across the water. And I took an audio recording of that on my phone and and it's it's pretty cool to hear that sound kind of coming across the water there. Yeah, that call is wonderful. I'm most interesting of the geese, if you ask me. But uh, it's interesting. They talk about how smells bring back memory, but that call for me is brings back really fond memories so it's a it's it's a neat one and i want to ask you to repeat it here but you did remind me that you mouth called in a brant for me because our our guy during the trip last week our guide was across the across the water retrieving some of the other hunters and we had a brant fly over and we didn't have a call and so you did your best brant impersonation and sure enough you turned it and i was the beneficiary of that so i want to ask you to repeat that unless you just want to but no 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 i (laughs) i did for jerry too although he doesn't want to admit it so uh, (laughs) (laughs) that's typical of jerry it was the wing flapping I did as well as the call, I think, that really brought him in. Of course, of course. Appreciate that. So, uh, well, let's move along here, Mark. I want to talk about distribution. You've covered this a little bit from a global standpoint. So, let's just talk about from the big picture standpoint, where do these birds in North America breed? 
Where, where will people find them? Yeah, so again, Black and Atlantic are a little, um, well, they're quite different, but um, Black are a bit unique in that they do nest out of the Arctic and the Yukon Delta historically has been the main breeding area for the Black brand. That's changing slowly but surely, but um, currently it's still the predominant breeding area for Black brand. Although that breeding range extends, of course, into the Arctic of Alaska, Western Arctic of Canada, and the Arctic of Russia, Eastern Russia as well. There was one place that uh, I don't think there's brant nesting there anymore that I really liked on the Sword Peninsula. I was hoping to visit during my PhD. It was Nug Nugaluktuk. It used to have a small colony of of brant. Um, but I never made it there, and I don't think they're there anymore. Ah, um, that's too bad. Well, you remembered the name properly, though. Yeah, there you go. The central Arctic of Canada, more western, I should say, Perry Islands. Again, the gray bellies, which are hybrids between the Atlantic and blacks. And then the Atlantic's predominantly um, eastern Arctic of Canada. And um, to my knowledge, nothing further south of the Arctic. Um, I'm thinking for a moment there. But, yeah, I think they're restricted to the eastern Arctic of Canada and their breeding distribution. One of the interesting things that you shared with us last week, Mark, is that for that Pacific population, there are birds that, there, there's a group of birds or subpopulation that will that nest along the north slope of Alaska. And then there's a group or a colony that lists, that that breeds there, nests there in the, uh, in the Yukon Delta. And you were telling us that there's a certain affinity of those sort of how would we say this? Maybe different migration timing or different wintering um, associations between those groups of birds. Do I remember that correctly? Yeah, we're just now starting to tease that out a little bit more. Um, part of the challenge is that most of the studies have been done on the Yukon Delta. There hasn't been quite as much done on the uh, North Slope, although there's some and uh, marking birds notably. But yeah, all the world population of black brant, including those from Russia, migrate to uh, where we were, Cold Bay, Alaska, Eisenbeck uh, Lagoon specifically. They use some neighboring lagoons um, as well in the fall. Uh, they, they show up there about the same time from those various breeding areas, and they stage there for a month plus um, before some of them um, migrate out of there, but fewer and fewer of them uh, leave that area, and some more and more spend the winter at uh, Eisenbeck. And those that spend the winter seem to be predominantly those breeding in the Arctic, whereas those that still continue to migrate tend to be those breeding on the Yukon Delta. Yeah, I found that really interesting. And I know we'll come back and, and touch on that a little bit later on when we talk about migration and, and wintering and, and how that's changing and why it's changing. But I just kind of wanted to piece that together a little bit, of the, the distribution of those birds. I guess, would you are they recognized as sort of separate populations or I guess separate breeding populations, right? Uh, separate breeding populations, but there's still a lot of genetic connection between those. So not to get too much into this now, but Again, I studied fidelity for my, my PhD work and two forms of it for their affinity to breeding areas. One is natal phylopatry. Do you return to the area where you were born to uh, subsequently breed? And then breeding uh, fidelity or phylopatry is um, do you breed to this area where you previously bred in, in a previous year, um, year after year? And about 50%, and this is a real rough number, of the individuals 
that about 50% of the individuals show natal fidelity. That is, they return to the area where they were born to breed, whereas about 95% thereabouts of the birds um, of the birds show breeding fidelity. Once you start breeding in an area, you come back to it year after year. And uh, but that exchange of genetic exchange among those populations is quite extensive at um, uh, uh, when they're young, because fifty percent of them move among various colonies. Mark, let's talk real quick about the wintering distribution of these birds, and and I guess. You've already mentioned kind of the staging area there in Eisenbeck Lagoon. If there's anything that you want to add about the Atlantic population, Atlantic branch, you can in terms of key staging areas for them. But also, let's talk about wintering locations for the black brant and then what we know about um, uh, Atlantic brant. Okay, let me start with black just because that's more familiar to me. But again, they all stage at the on the western tip of the Alaska Peninsula, mostly at Eisenbeck Lagoon, staying there a month plus putting on a half again their body weight. Sometimes those adult males are showing up at, oh, 1,200 grams and leaving at 1,800 grams. And for good reason, because one of the things they're famous for is um, they take on a nonstop migration from the Alaska Peninsula to uh, Baja, California, some 60 hours of uh, sustained flight, almost 3,000 miles, and very tied to uh, higher elevation wind patterns that uh, they exploit to to migrate. And Mark, what you mean by that is you they time their departure from Eisenbeck Lagoon to coincide with favorable wind conditions associated with certain types of atmospheric patterns. They get they they. They want that strong tailwind, kind of given that long-distance migration, right? Yeah, exactly. And and you may recall when we were there, um, there was a fairly strong north wind, uh, northwest wind that came in, and the cackler said, time to go. And um, and most of the cacklers, hundreds of thousands that were staging there, they left. And actually, I just had an email from Jeff Wasley, who we mentioned earlier um, uh, yesterday, saying that the Brant were likely going to go because... They were getting a good flow and good uh, currents that they were going to go on. And he was predicting that those that were going to migrate were probably going to go this week. Yeah, I was looking at the at the wind forecast up there just earlier this morning, and they've got sustained winds of 30, 35 miles per hour, gusts to 50 miles per hour out of the northwest. So, yeah, it was occurring, that was occurring to me. Now, just to kind of clarify one thing, the, the cacklers that you referenced, they're not going to be flying to Mexico. They're going to be going largely down into Washington and Oregon is like their likely destination, maybe some on farther south from that. But do I get that right? Yep, yep. And... Yeah, not nearly as long a flight, but and you watch this all week. The other thing I'd add about Bran is they're built to fly. They're just yeah, so yeah, unique and, and geese and um, so fun to watch in flight. They and how they work the wind. They, I try to use the analogy of a sailboat. It's almost like they um, exploit that wind with those long, narrow wings in a, in a very unique way for. Uh, for geese particularly. And in the summer, just to add to that, they're the only goose that I'm aware of that's capable of aerial pursuit of avian predators like gulls. I mean, they will take a glaucus gull on and and track it in the air and even reach out and bite it um, to, to fend it off. So that's pretty fun to watch them. 
Yeah, that was one of the things that I noticed as well. Their wings are, are very long. They are much more pointed than the wings, pointed kind of from a sense of, of, of appearance than what we see in Canada geese, white fronts, snow geese. And that's not unlike some of the differences in wing morphology and wing shape that we see across the entire spectrum of birds. Uh, and we've talked about this on a previous episode about how that is the shape of those wings is kind of evolutionarily tuned to the the uh, some of their foraging strategies and some of the habitats that they occupy in response to their their preferred diet there's probably some feedback onto those things one from the other but those longer those birds with longer wings, more pointed wings, you typically associate with more open environments, open water environments. In the case of, of Brant, I kind of find myself wondering what it would look like for a Brant to land on on upland. Uh, I'm certain they can do it, but are they a little more awkward than cackling geese and, and let's say, white fronts? Uh, no, they tend to be a little longer-legged, and they're quite capable on land, um, you know, although they don't spend much time there relative to the other geese. I was just thinking in North America, they're the only goose species that hasn't really started exploiting agricultural uh, subsidies crops in any uh, real numbers and uh, uh, but but during breeding of course they're on land and very capable of it that that was one thing that I noted in in some of the reading about Atlantic brand they they have started to exploit some of the some of the turf grasses and that relates to, to the changes in their uh, their food resources on the Atlantic coast. But uh, yeah, Black Brant, Pacific Brant, certainly have have not. I didn't find any reference to that. And so the other thing, we'll finish out one little thing here, then we'll take a break. You, you talked about the the magnificent long-distance flight from Eisenbeck Lagoon all the way down to Mexico. But there are some, there's some portion of that Black Brant population that stops kind of along the way or that will winter in Washington or else stop in Washington and make their way down to Humboldt and then down to San Diego. Is that how large of a percentage of the population uh, do we see doing that? I think it's the minority for sure in the fall. Um, in the spring, that is the way most of them uh, work their way back as they sort of jump between spot uh, spot maybe a hundred couple hundred miles apart and work their way back in the spring but in the fall it's it's the minority and um, you know we were talking about this a little bit last week what I'm fascinated by is how do they communicate that hey we're not just flying to the next eel grass bed today this is the real deal we're going 3,000 miles or maybe we're going 2,000 or a thousand even but how do they especially the young birds on you know this is the first time. And uh, and I, I, that fascinates me. Migration in general fascinates me, but that aspect of it is particularly intriguing. This might be a tangent, um, but you know, add to that other breeders on the Yukon Delta that are even more amazing in migration. Bartelt Godwitz, we talked about a little bit, um, but they go eight thousand miles nonstop over eight days, and Arctic terns who uh, like have a similar wing structure to brand are going maybe as much as 10,000 miles to the Southern hemisphere. So, I mean, how do you make this decision one day? Hey, I'm going to fly 3000 miles nonstop. And, uh, that's amazing to think about. It is. And, and the fact that they can navigate these to those, those destinations, 
uh, over such a long distance. It, it really is one of, it continues to be one of the most, most fascinating aspects of that group of birds from a behavioral standpoint and what they're able to accomplish. Mark, I think we'll probably take a break here. And then on the back side of this, I want to make sure there wasn't something that we left out for the Atlantic Brant with regard to, um, to wintering and staging. Actually, I don't think we've talked much about that. So we'll pick up there right after that break. Sound good? Sounds good. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Mossy Oak has partnered with Ducks Unlimited to bring you Shadowgrass Habitat, the official camo of Ducks Unlimited. Shadowgrass Habitat pays homage to the first waterfowl-specific camo pattern ever made, Mossy Oak Shadowgrass, while incorporating the most realistic, digitally accurate images of the natural habitats that make up true waterfowl habitat. Mossy Oak is committed to conservation as its highest priority. With the launch of Mossy Oak Shadowgrass Habitat, Mossy Oak will continue funding habitat protection projects through our longtime partnership with Ducks Unlimited. Check out the new Shadowgrass Habitat pattern at mossyoak.com. Step into the world of Campus Waterfowl, a community that's shaping the future of the hunting industry. At Campus Waterfowl, we're more than just hunters. We're students. We're, students. we're conservationists. We're conservationists. With the next generation. next generation. Join us as we highlight the dedication and commitment of young hunters nationwide. Visit CampusWaterfowl.com to become part of our story. Campus Waterfowl, the future of hunting starts here. We are the Ducks Unlimited Nation. United by our passion for hunting, the outdoors, and conservation. The habitats that Ducks Unlimited have been maintaining and building since 1937 have effects far beyond the duck hunting community. Follow along with our YouTube series as we tell your stories and become part of the Ducks Unlimited Nation. DU Nation. Take it outside. Welcome back, everyone. We're here with Dr. Mark Lindbergh talking about Brant, and let's pick up with a the wintering distribution of Atlantic Brant. Where do we find those, and are there any major staging areas like what we see for, for Black Brant? Well, wintering-wise, they're uh, 90% of the population of approximately 150,000 Brant winter on the coast of New Jersey and, and New York. Um, they extend down to North Carolina at their southern extreme, um, but most of them are on the northern part of that distribution along the Atlantic coast. Um, staging, I actually don't know that, Mike, but you do. <laughs> <laughs> I was no, not, not, enough to, not enough to talk about it with any confidence. I forget it. I forget if it's if it's during fall or spring, but I know uh, James Bay uh, plays a role in the migration oh, yep. of, of Atlantic Brant, but I can't remember if it's coming or going or if it's both, actually, it may be. Yeah, I was actually trying to look it up during the break, but you were too quick, so I, I <laughs> sound smart, but I don't know that. Their migration distance in general is much shorter. Yeah. You know, it's it's less than half the distance that the black are migrating, so I would, I would suspect that the staging areas... Um, may be less dominant and important given that distance, but um, 
I, I'm shooting from the hip a little bit there. Mark, I think right now is a good time to talk about one of the more notable things in the ecology of Brandt and what we've learned over the years, and that is how their distributions during winter have changed. I think related to that, we'll want to talk about their diet because that plays a key role in some of uh, some of what we're what we've observed over the years. Maybe uh, maybe more on the Atlantic for Atlantic Brant with regard to some of the profound changes in their, uh, in their food resources there. So let's start with that. Brant are incredibly fascinating because of their reliance, heavy, heavy reliance on a very small group of foods. And for Black Brant, it's primarily one species of plant. They've had to expand their diet on the Atlantic coast because of some some losses of their traditionally favored food item. But talk about that. Why are Brant, what makes Brant so cool from their foraging and their, and their food preferences? Yeah, so through much of the year, except breeding, they rely almost exclusively on eelgrass as their, their main food resource. And Eelgrass is a long, narrow um, ocean plant that um, that is uh, um, pretty extensively distributed, but not always very productive in all of its range. And so, Brant tend to focus on those areas where it's most productive. But it does appear, as you mentioned, Atlantic that uh, eelgrass is sensitive to a change and. Um, and is deteriorated in some regions. It appears to be deteriorating in Mexico, probably because of agricultural runoff and and uh, sedimentation and uh, introduction of pesticides and um, that are affecting its productivity. And as we talked around a little bit, I, and of the two points I want to emphasize today about black brand, this is one of them. Um, we're seeing black brand starting to respond to that change as well. So 20 years ago, um, the estimates were less than 5% of the population wintered in Alaska. And today that estimate's close to 40% are thought to winter in Alaska now. And you can, you can debate that a little bit, but we've shown it's very tied to El Nino cycles in the, the Pacific and ocean temperatures associated with that, which are likely affecting eelgrass as well. And um, like I said, 40% of the world population of brand, black brand are starting to, are now wintering in, in Alaska. I want to explore that in a little detail because I was I was describing to my wife about some of these things. She she worked for Ducks Unlimited back in the day and has an interest in waterfowl and wetlands. And I was explaining some of these things to her, and and she asked me a few questions. I'm like, I don't I don't really know how that would have played out. So historically, back at a, back at the time when you said they were that only five percent of the Black Brant population overwintered in Alaska, uh, there at Eisenbeck Lagoon, what? was unfolding what were conditions like there during winter did it freeze did, did Eisenbeck lagoon freeze back then and they simply weren't able to stay there or was it a situation where they the you know the food resources in mexico were so much better have we seen a change in food resources one way or another uh, or is it just sort of the result of some different strategies employed by by individual brant and then we're not seeing as dire a consequences these days for those birds that are wintering in in Eisenbeck Lagoon and just through time we've seen those birds succeed and represent a larger portion of the population what's how's all that playing out 
Uh, I asked you about a dozen questions in that right there. So let me go back and say, historically, would Eisenbeck Lagoon ever freeze? I think it froze more extensively than it does today. I don't know that it ever froze up, but interestingly, I was telling you earlier about an article that's recently come out um, that included an interview with Jeff Wosley, who I said had spent 20 years there, and um, he was recalling, I think it was last year, Eisenbeck froze as much as it ever had in the time that he's been there, and there were some 70,000 birds winning there. I suspect this was probably in December November, this occurred, and they displaced for a while, but then returned to the lagoon and apparently did fine. So even if it did freeze historically, um, the birds might have had alternatives in more exposed uh, habitats or other areas that were um, not freezing. So I don't know that that alone is the explanation. And, and the we don't know is the answer, by the way, why more wintering there. I don't think it's a single reason. Um, the other dimension that has intrigued me is that we've shown a real decline in the condition of goslings that are produced both on the Yukon Delta and the North Slope of Alaska habitat conditions for foraging during brood rearing or grading. And um, they, uh, I wonder if they're not capable of the flight. And so maybe the decision is made to not go, or if they go, they don't make it, and the tradition is not passed on. It seems a little too rapid a change to think that it's translating through generations in that manner yet. So again, I don't think it's the the sole reason, but it's one that intrigues me. Um, so Brand are leaving the Yukon Delta at much lower mass than those from the North Slope, and they're in pretty rough shape when they show up at Cold Bay. And we've shown, and the other really good data set, I think, is over the last 20 years, sur first-year survival of those goslings has declined at, at a, an alarming rate. Um, so up around 60% or so 20 years ago for both um, brand on the uh, goslings produced on the North Slope and Yukon Delta. And today, that's down around 20% for both populations. Wow. And so... You wonder how that's translating into things like migration traditions and, you know, not a much smaller fraction of the goslings produced that year are making that migration. And who knows how that's translating through generations. You mentioned that there seems to be a relationship to between the number of Brant wintering in Mexico and El Nino events or El Nino, year, El Nino years. Can you explain that a little bit? What's uh, El Nino is the warming, uh, is a pattern of the warming of Pacific waters near the, near the equator. But how does that affect, do we know how that affects the resources there in Mexico and how it might be less beneficial or how or it, it might you know, be ad, adverse, create adverse conditions for Brant? Yeah, I think the other way to think about it is that it, it creates more favorable conditions in the north. I see. So it may not just be the adverse effect. I mean, they might be able to show up in Eisenbeck and and identify or or um, react to cues that they're experiencing. Maybe even ocean temperature production of eelgrass in those years might be changing. And um, just say, well, is it really worth it? Um, why not just stay here and um, so I, I'm not so sure it's them anticipating the conditions that might exist in Mexico as much as what they're experiencing when they show up at Cold Bay. Okay. Well, that's interesting. I really hadn't looked into it that much, but that 
makes sense, I guess. What else from kind of a historical change perspective there at at Eisenbeck uh, or what we're seeing there in, in Mexico? Anything that we've kind of left out that's of importance here? Maybe from a harvest standpoint, I mean, traditionally the harvest was almost exclusively in Mexico and that is changing with more and more birds being harvested in, in Cold Bay, Eisenbeck specifically. And um, harvest rates there have gone from about 1% to 4% over the last couple of decades. And Mexico is, it's got some really traditional users, but it's becoming less and less important from a harvest standpoint than it used to be. Let's talk about Atlantic Brant for just a minute for, in terms of historical changes in their food base. Uh, also, like like Black Brant, uh, they, their primary diet item, their primary food historically was eelgrass. But talk about some of the key events that occurred back through the years and how that has affected where we see or what we see as the diet of, of Atlantic Brant these days. Yeah, so there's two major events in the history of Atlantic Brant that I'm familiar with, the 1930s, which I'm sure isn't very well documented, but there was some type of well, disease that spread through the eelgrass beds. I don't know if that was temperature-related or not, but it was very descriptive back then, but apparently Atlantic Brant numbers just absolutely plummeted. And then again in 1970s, which was better documented, um, change in eelgrass productivity, um, I don't remember the exact reasons, but estimates of number of Brant went from Atlantic Brant went from 200,000 to 40,000 in a couple years. And, um, you know, they're a pretty captive audience, right? There's not extensive eelgrass beds that are productive enough to sustain them. So, you know, mortality rates had to been insanely high um, for that to occur. You know, adults on average are surviving at about 80% per year. And if you do some quick math, their numbers had to have been less than 50% um, annual survival during that period to have that kind of decline. So they're pretty vulnerable to those kind of changes. And it appears the changes in Mexico for black brand are occurring slowly. But um, but now you potentially have most of the population in, in a, well, almost a single lagoon system in Alaska. I mean, the vulnerability of that species and, you know, unlike Atlantics, there's no opportunity if you're wintering in Alaska to go feed on golf courses or on uh, terrestrial plants, um, which might be available to Atlantic Brant wintering um, in New Jersey. Yeah, I I did read that the Atlantic Brant have adapted to that, the the decline of their, of those eelgrass grass beds by exploiting some golf courses and other turf grass areas. And I th- I'm pretty sure that that's the feeding, primary feeding habit of Brent geese in Europe as well. I seem to recall that. They're, a, they're one of those upland, have become one of those upland grazing species. You widgeon as well in, in certain parts of Europe have adapted to those those upland landscapes and are foraging on that, that green grass. Incidentally, that might be the reason why there's a significant difference in the in the the flavor profile, you might say the the table worthiness of black brant and Atlantic brant. I've heard that's always the thing that people will one of the first things people will say when I tell them that I've returned from Cold Bay, Alaska, and we harvested a few brant. They're like, "Have you eaten the brant yet?" And it's like, "No, not yet." I actually have though. The past two nights, I did have brant, and it is absolutely wonderful. People will tell you that black brant on the Pacific coast, uh, the Pacific brant are. By, by all accounts, I've not heard anyone say anything different, are the best tasting waterfowl species, at least in North America. Uh, and Atlantic Brant are 
pretty far on the other end of the of that uh, spectrum, that gradient in terms of how they how they are as table fare. And you have to believe it's related to diet, correct? Oh, definitely. Yeah, and I'm not going to dispute with anything about that in terms of table fare. I mean, Black Brandt are amazing. Yeah, their taste is incredible. Yeah, and that is actually just to reinforce that one thing I do know about the uh, European brand, the Brent geese and the widgeon there, the degradation of habitat has caused them to use terrestrial food resources more in winter than they used to. And um, again, I wonder how much of that will be available to Pacific brand or black brand if if Mexico resources decline and, or worse yet, Atlantic resources decline. Um, seemed like a pretty vulnerable population from that standpoint. Mark, I wonder if, if we can close out this episode by talking about spring migration. We still have, we're going to have to do two episodes on that. So one of the things, one of the things I've quickly realized is that when we bring on an expert to talk about these species, we go into much greater detail on a lot of that, a lot of different aspects of the, of the ecology and, and biology of the species. And I, I like that. I really enjoy that. But invariably, it means that we have to uh, do two episodes, which if you're okay with that, we'll bring you back for a follow-up episode. But for right now, let's talk about spring migration if you, if you think that's an appropriate way to go. Yeah, that's fine. We're, we're kind of on that topic. And, and I mentioned already that uh, uh, blacks, it's kind of weird. I call them black brands and I call them the Atlantics, Atlantics, of course, but uh, you you tend to be Pacific, but hopefully everyone's with us. Um, when I say black, I mean Pacific black brand. So, anyways, they trickle north in the uh, in the spring, and um, in addition to eelgrass, there is some evidence that they're probably using some um, some herring roe too, and it enters their diet. And I don't know that they would taste as good in the spring. Um, I haven't had the opportunity, but it would fatten you up pretty quickly. And they they just make their way north in a, like I said, sort of hopping point to point, including some staging areas up the uh, west coast of Alaska, even before they make landfall on their breeding areas. And um, there's one uh, study I'll mention relative to this uh, student that I didn't advise, but I interacted with and still do today, who uh, worked on uh, the physiology of Brandt, both wintering in Cold Bay, Eisenbeck, and in Mexico. And they did that by collecting birds and looking at their physiological condition. Um, interestingly, those birds by the spring had basically converged on a very similar condition. So you had these birds in Cold Bay that had to deal with a winter that was pretty challenging and you know their their uh, condition declined because of that but the birds that flew to Mexico had the cost of migration but once they arrived there they had better weather of course and reasonable resources and then as they worked their way north they were hitting good resources coming up coast of British Columbia and and so forth um, but by the time they rejoined each other, this is like 20 years ago, um, in the spring, their condition was very similar. So I thought that was a pretty fascinating part of it. That study was done 
uh, like I said, almost 20 years ago now, and I I think that would be a fascinating study to redo. And um, I volunteer to go out and help them do that. <laughs> I, I bet you would as well. I, um, I'm sure I would. Let me talk to Steve about that. I'll see if I can uh, work that into my schedule. <laughs> yeah, no, but I, I thought that was an interesting part from a migration standpoint. The strategy of staying or migrating, at least in those years, was resulted in almost the same outcome. Yeah. And I, and there's something else that has been looked into a little bit, um, not as extensively as we hope, but there's something called cross-seasonal effect, and that is how are the decisions you make in terms of winter translate into breeding areas. And there there is some evidence that it does translate, but not at a level that's um, huge. It's not a big effect. Yeah, those are two dramatic differences, uh, two, two dramatically distinct migration wintering strategies. One is let's just stay in Alaska and the other is let's fly down to Mexico. And just as you've talked about this issue of cross-seasonal effect and what are the how do different migration strategies translate into differences in reproductive reproductive success is a is a very important topic and it's getting a lot of attention among some of the duck species out there right now. And it's just fascinating that apparently there's not much of a difference, at least historically 20 years ago there wasn't. But yeah, I agree with you that looking at that again would certainly be fascinating. So, you know, we were talking about population strategy, basically. Do you winter in, in, are you part of the population of winters in Alaska or are you part of the population of winters in Mexico? And I think by and large that is what's going on. It's a population level strategy. Yukon birds tend to go to Baja. Uh, North Slope birds tend to stay in Alaska. But I got involved in some research, um, it was 10 years ago now, and it was on individual heterogeneity and basically individual strategies. And it's a really fancy word that, or phrase that means there's some birds in the population that are better at what they do than others. Um, and some of this came out of my PhD way back in the 1990s. There was something we documented that was really strange to me at the time, that there was members of the Pacific brand population that we characterized as permanent non-breeding. So to our knowledge, they never successfully bred to the point where year after year, they were identifiable on molding areas for failed and non-breeding brand. And at Teshapuk Lake on the north slope of Alaska. These birds, year after year after year, would show up there, and someone actually did work on the fidelity of these birds. We looked in it a little bit differently and just asked, over the life of the bird, are there individuals in the population that do really well, and then those that don't do as well? And roughly, we called them good and bad birds. And sure enough, there's really strong signatures that you see in uh, Pacific Brant on the Yukon Delta, at least, for for individual heterogeneity or individual variation in quality relative to survival and reproduction. And there's these really productive birds that if you harvest them, um, it has much more effect on the population dynamics than harvesting, quote-unquote, bad bird. And that really intrigues me from the harvest standpoint. Now, you know, for waterfowl, Brent, for sure, there's no external characteristics. There's not anything you could look at at a bird flying by and say, shoot that one, don't shoot that one. I mean, you know, roughly speaking, if you could shoot a juvie over an adult, that's one way of thinking about it. You you would be better off from a population standpoint shooting the juvie or, for that matter, shooting the male over the female if you could identify them, which you can somewhat in, in flight. But, but then within females, 
there's this range of quality of these individuals, and that just intrigues me to no end. There's these birds that we could look at their individual histories, and they're just absolute um, super birds from a production standpoint. And um, we got into some population modeling in it, but you can actually um, show mathematically, this sounds like hocus pocus, but it's not, um, you could show that you can increase harvest. And if you could target quote unquote bad birds or low quality birds, you could actually have the population increase in abundance because by doing so, you've increased the proportion of the population that um, is, is made up of good birds. Yeah, it makes total sense to me. You consider it a, if, if you were able to do it, you're effectively kind of quote, high grading the population to a larger percentage of those great, of those more productive birds. No, I, I get it. Yeah, and I think there's some opportunities to exploit it. I mean, it's getting, you need really good data to be able to do this really refined data. But if you think of Brant and Pacific Brant, you know, again, back to these permanent non-breeders, if that's true, they're probably low quality birds. You could go target harvest to them, maybe at Teshapuk Lake and have minimal effect on the population rather than shooting the breeding birds from the colonies we spoke of already. So the opportunity uh, intrigues me. Um, you know, one of the largest migrations now, waterfowl are molt migrating resident Canada geese in the Atlantic, right? Um, those are likely tend to be lower quality individuals, um, may not be breeding, may not be successfully breeding. If you could target them, you could shoot a lot of them and have middle, more, less of an effect on the population than in, if you went and shot breeding birds. Yeah. So, yeah. That's an interesting way of thinking about it. And individual differences in, in reproductive rates or survival rates and then behaviors is... It's a growing field. I saw a social media post a few days ago by Dr. Mike Chamberlain, who is a turkey ecologist, researcher. I think, yeah, I think Mike is at the University of Georgia still. And with individually marked birds, they're able to look at the, I think they were looking at movements and distances traveled and how there are different birds that do different things. And then in the context that he was looking at it, there's the potential for those different behaviors to expose them to greater or lesser risk of, of being harvested. And so the idea that all birds or all animals are the same and they're, they just represent a an average animal, I think we're certainly getting to the point where we can throw that notion out the window. But then how do we quantify those individual differences and are there management implications for those differences is really where it sounds like we're going next in, in a number of ways, which is, yeah, very fascinating. Yeah, I find it completely fascinating. And there's got to be a genetic basis for it. That quality has to be heritable to be of importance in the population. And, you know, the the more obvious examples are in the mammal world where, you know, we're shooting uh, full curl rams only. Well, arguably, those are high-quality individuals by definition. So the harvest of, of sheep, uh, doll sheep, thinking of those in, in Alaska at least, is exclusively of high-quality individuals. And so just through math, you're reducing the proportion of high-quality individuals in the population. And you might even be selecting for changes in horn length 
we've seen this in moose. Um, the number of brow tines used to be more focused on in terms of harvest regulations. And they've shown in populations that you basically eliminate the genetics for individuals with more than three brow tines because you're focusing harvest there. So I think there's examples that this is translating out more challenging in a bird world, more challenging to identify quality by external characteristics. But I think we need to start thinking about this more and more because it could be an opening to increase harvest while um, reducing impacts. Mark, I really appreciate your time here today. We're going to be out of time for, for this episode. We're going to have to ask you to come back. We'll get into the breeding ecology of the of Brandt. We'll talk about uh, population trajectories, conservation concerns, and a, and a few other things along the way. Would you be able to do that for us? No, that sounds great. And I'll study up on Atlantic Brandt in the meantime. Okay. But I'm not going to study up on... Uh, European brand. That that's fair. That's a fair request or, or, or fair uh, fair offer. Appreciate that. Special thanks to our guest on today's episode, Dr. Mark Lindbergh. We greatly appreciate his time and expertise on the subject of Brandt. As always, we thank our producer, Chris Isaac, who does a, a terrific job with these episodes and getting them out to you. And then to you, the listener, we thank you for your time and we thank you for your support of wetlands and waterfowl conservation. Thank you for listening to this episode of the DU Podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show. And visit www.ducks.org slash DU Podcast for resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes. Opinions expressed by guests do not necessarily reflect those of Ducks Unlimited. Until next time, stay tuned to the Ducks. Stay tuned to the Ducks. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why Pro Plan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Mossy Oak has partnered with Ducks Unlimited to bring you Shadowgrass Habitat, the official camo of Ducks Unlimited. Shadowgrass Habitat pays homage to the first waterfowl-specific camo pattern ever made, Mossy Oak Shadowgrass, while incorporating the most realistic, digitally accurate images of the natural habitats that make up true waterfowl habitat. Mossy Oak is committed to conservation as its highest priority. With the launch of Mossy Oak Shadowgrass Habitat, Mossy Oak will continue funding habitat protection projects through our longtime partnership with Ducks Unlimited. Check out the new Shadowgrass Habitat pattern at mossyoak.com. Step into the world of Campus Waterfowl, a community that's shaping the future of the hunting industry. At Campus Waterfowl, we're more than just hunters. We're students. We're, students. we're conservationists. We're conservationists. With the next generation. the next generation. Join us as we highlight the dedication and commitment of young hunters nationwide. Visit CampusWaterfowl.com to become part of our story. Campus Waterfowl, the future of hunting starts here. We are the Ducks Unlimited Nation. United by our passion for hunting, the outdoors, and conservation. The habitats that Ducks Unlimited have been maintaining and building since 1937 have effects far beyond the duck hunting community. Follow along with our YouTube series as we tell your stories and become part of the Ducks Unlimited Nation. DU Nation. Take it outside.